let me get you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. You know, I had uh, told you whenever we started looking at these passages in Luke that this was, this was a travel narrative and we were going to kind of start a little series here on this. The only thing is this, is, and, and I had a feeling this was going to happen, the travel narrative goes into chapter 19. And so it seems obvious that we are not going to get to chapter 19. We'll, so what, what I'm going to do is this, is for the next two Sundays, we're still going to have some sermons out of the travel narrative. But it's just going to be a couple of passages that I just like a lot. It's parables. Jesus was the best storyteller of all times. I mean, honestly, how many people can claim that they told a story that people are talking about 2,000 years later, like he did with the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son? I mean, these are terms that have just become a part of our vocabulary. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach a sermon on the man that God called a fool, and then I probably will do one on the prodigal son. I just like those, and I know you've probably heard a gazillion of them before, a gazillion sermons on those passages before, and probably sermons better than what I can preach. But I'm going to put it this way. I just want to hear it again, okay? And so you'll just have to put up with me on that. Anyway, but let's, uh, you know, whenever I have... Uh, done funerals, sometimes we hear a wide variety of music. Uh, most of the time, it's something that's good and something that you like. I, I did one funeral one time, and it was held at what was an old dance hall that was out of service, and it was dusty and dirty, but that was where the family wanted to have the funeral held, and I was asked if I would go there and do it. And I said, well, yeah. And I said, now, there's two things that I try to do. Number one, I'll try to help the family. Number two, I want to honor God with what I say. Now, I said, if you're willing to go for that, I am too. And they said, we're fine with it. And I said, well, that's what we're going to do. Anyway, it was a hot day. There was no, no air conditioning or anything like that. And it was like in August in the afternoon. And I'm serious. It was as hot as that place that I never want to go to. Anyway, and so... And we got there, and they had me standing on the bandstand, and they had all these flowers in front of me. I couldn't even see the people that were out there. And, uh, and so I just stepped off the bandstand, and I said, guys, today I want to talk to you about Jesus. And you know what? I don't think I've ever had an audience at a funeral that listened quite so intently, nor have I ever had an audience at a funeral that wanted to talk to me as much as they did after it was over with. And... Uh, but one of the songs that they played, the last song they played at the funeral was Prop Me Up Beside the Jukebox When I Die. <laughs> Have mercy. You know, that was, hmm. I've never heard that one at a funeral before or since. But there was another one that they sang, and it was I Saw the Light. Now, that was written by Hank Williams. You know, it says, I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin, I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Well, Hank wrote that song about six years before he died, and the inspiration of this song, and you may have heard this, was his mother. His mother was driving him back from a singing gig in Arkansas, and they were getting close to Birmingham, and she woke up Hank, I think he was in the back seat, and she said, I saw the light, meaning she saw the lights from the Birmingham airport. That's what she meant, but I guess it stuck in Hank's mind. 
Matter of fact, his mother was driving because he was drunk, and, uh, and so he really wasn't in any condition to drive. I often wonder, though, with as many times as I've heard that song sung at a funeral, did Hank ever see the light, any light other than the Birmingham airport? I don't know. But uh, anyway, I want us to talk about seeing the light, but seeing the light of the gospel, seeing the light of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're going to talk about. I want to start here with chapter, in chapter 11 of Luke and starting with verse 27. It says, as he, that is Jesus, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South, that would be the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. And when your, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you become darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. And uh, here with verse, starting with verse 27. Verses 27 and 28 talk about looking beneath the surface. Now, Jesus was speaking to a crowd, and the crowd just seemed to be becoming more and more dense. It says in verse 29, the crowds were increasing. And Jesus was pretty much the talk of the town wherever he went. And wherever he went, there were people that would gather. Some gathered just to see him perform a miracle. After all, as far as they thought, it was probably a pretty good sideshow. And Jesus basically told him, that's all that you're looking for anyway. But then there were some people that gathered because they really did want to hear him speak. Can you imagine what it would be like if we could hear Jesus speaking and hear him teaching? You know, whenever he, he gave the Sermon on the Mount, you can read this at the end of Matthew chapter 7. It says that after he got through speaking, the people were basically amazed because they had never heard anyone speak like that before. I mean, it had to be something just to hear him talk, just to hear him bring his message across, because there was something about the way he spoke. They said he spoke with authority, not like their scribes and their Pharisees and people like that. In other words, when Jesus talked and whenever he spoke, he knew whereof he spoke. He could tell you that this is the way it is, and he could do it with authority. Maybe we'll get to hear him talk one of these days. You know, wouldn't that be something? Anyway... So while they were all gathered together, evidently there was a woman that just got so excited about listening to Jesus speak, she just had to shout something out. 
And uh, it, she said, how blessed it must have been to have been your mother. I mean, and think about it. That was a blessing. You know, I mean, that she got to be the one to feed Jesus, to take care of him, to dress him when he was a little child. She, was, she got to watch him grow up and to become a man. And let me tell you something, she was proud of him. She truly was. You know, we're familiar with passage in John chapter 2 where Jesus turned the water into wine. Now, people make jokes about that all the time, but you need to think about some of the stuff that was going on in there. Here it was. It was a marriage feast that was going to go on for about seven days, and they either they didn't buy enough wine in the first place or the people that were there were really consuming it in large quantities. We don't know. But they ran out of wine, which was a terrible no-no back then. And so everyone was probably going around whispering to each other, what are we going to do? We're about to run out of wine. And so Jesus, Mary was there. And she comes up to Jesus and she said, they've run out of wine. And Jesus said, basically, why are you bothering me with this? You know, this is not my time to let everybody know who I am. But Mary didn't pay any attention, evidently. She goes off and tells one of the servants, whatever he tells you to do, you do it, okay? That is the talk of a proud mama. If I had been Mary or if I had been Joseph, I would have been proud of him too. Wouldn't you? But she was proud of him. And was she blessed? You bet she was. What that woman said, Jesus didn't necessarily disagree with her when she said, you know, how blessed you are. Blessed is the womb that bore you. You know, blessed is the mother who fed you. You know, Jesus did disagree, but he said, I'll tell you a blessing greater than that. How blessed is it is for the person who hears God's word and does what it says. Understand this. The most important relationship that you can have anywhere is not the relationship we have with each other, even though that is important. It's important that we know each other and love each other, and that's a great thing, and we rejoice in it. But the most important relationship that we can have is with God and knowing God in a special way. His mother, Mary, was able to share his humanity. To us, we can hear and keep his word. And to do that is to commune with God. To hear his word means not only to hear it, but he also says to keep it. In other words, to make it a part of your life, to take it, to embrace it, to love it, to cherish it, to say this is what God has to say to me, and I want to do that because it's that important. So remember, the most important thing that you can do is that the family of God takes precedence of all earthly relationships. And so... What we have to do is look beneath the surface. So many times we, we view our faith just superficially and we think of uh, the things that we do, you know, about, I've forgotten what some people would say. Like, we like to go to such and such church because the preacher's so funny. Or we like to go to such and such church because we can dress a certain way. Folks, that's shallow. What's really important is I want to go somewhere I want to be with people who hear God's word and who do it and who cherish it and who love it because that's where the life is. Now, next thing. Jesus talks about signs. 
Now, whenever you talk about a sign, and, and especially if, if you're reading the Gospel of John, that's the term that John nearly always uses for referring to a miracle. Miracle, a sign, all of those things fall into the same category. And no doubt, whenever Jesus got together, there were people that wanted to see him do a sign. But all they were concerned with was seeing something that was just about like a, a you know, magic stunt. And, and the thing is, is that it really wasn't going to do a whole lot. Jesus just told them that the ultimate sign was not another miracle. Understand this. Don't get me wrong on this, but understand this. I don't think that God or Jesus ever performed miracles just in order to make us believe. Think about this. You could see Jesus do miracles and still not believe in him. I mean, even his disciples were like that. Whenever you look in, uh, in, the, in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 14, you can read about Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a little boy's lunch. Okay, we're familiar with that. That he took this and he broke, it, broke the bread and the fish up into pieces, and then he began giving it to his disciples. They went out there and they had a... a crew of 5,000 uh, 5, people out there, and they went out there with one basket full after another feeding them. Of all the miracles that are recorded in the New Testament that Jesus did, that miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only one found in all four gospel accounts. It had to be important. And you know what led up to it. You know, Jesus told his disciples, he said, these people have been here a long time. They've come from a long way off. There's no place close by. Let's, let's give them something to eat before they go home because we don't want them to faint on the way home. And, of course, they were saying, huh? You know, there's no place where we can get anything. We could work for three months and not have enough money to buy enough food for everyone to get one bite. And Jesus said, have them sit down. And you remember how he did that breaking up the fish and the bread. Wouldn't you have liked to have seen that? I mean, we'd, you just keep coming back with an empty basket and you'd break up some more and there you go. And they would just keep going back and forth until everybody was fed. And after everybody was full, they had far more food left over than they even started with. Now, that is in Matthew chapter 14. If you read on into Matthew chapter 15, you find out that Jesus was with his disciples again, and once again, a huge crowd gathered, and once again, he spoke until it became late in the day, and once again, he said, we need to feed them. Now, what did the disciples say? What did his apostles say? Well, of course we know what they said. They'd seen Jesus do this before, and so they said, okay, Lord, you want to go and get, get uh, about 12 empty baskets and uh, we'll get this all done and oh, we'll feed, have them fed in no time. We learned a lot from the last time you did something like this. Is that what they said? Absolutely not. What did they do? They said, feed this many people? What are you talking about? There's no way in the world we have, we'll have enough to feed all of these people. In other words, they didn't get it, did they? They saw a miracle that was amazing and it didn't sink in and create faith in them. Miracles primarily were done by Jesus, done by prophets in the Old Testament too. They were done primarily to teach about who God is and what he is like. They really weren't there to make you believe. And so Jesus is saying, you know, this group here, these people that I deal with on a regular basis, by and large, 
they want to find, they want to see some signs. Well, they're not going to get a sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. And whenever he got into Nineveh later, which I've often wondered what he smelled like. Anyway, but whenever he got into Nineveh later, he preached to the people of Nineveh. And Nineveh was a wicked place, but they repented when they heard him preach. He said, you're not going to get any sign except the main sign. And that is the sign of the prophet Jonah. In other words, what was he talking about? Well, three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish were, were a reference to Jesus' time in the tomb. If you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to have a reason to hang your hat on something and say, this is where I stand, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Don't get caught up just in the miracles just because they're fantastic. They teach us a lot. They really do. And don't ignore them and don't brush them off as saying, oh, we don't believe those types of things happen. Well, they did happen. They're written down and documented. But folks, the greatest thing, greatest, greatest act, the greatest miraculous thing that God ever did was sending his son into this sin-cursed world. And that son died upon a cross and was buried dead as a hammer in a tomb. And three days later, he was alive. But he wasn't quite the same anymore. You know, he could go in and out of your house without opening the door. You know, this is the amazing thing about this. And, and so what we have to see is this. Is there some people that they're always wanting to see the fantastic. Listen, the fantastic has already happened. And if you're not willing to believe in the resurrection, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're not going to accept anything else about God. You're not going to be able to accept anything else about the good news or the, or the gospel or hope for eternal life. This is where it's at. Hang your hat on the one who died for our sins and raised from the dead to accomplish our justification. Another thing that we see here is this, in the next few verses after this, it has to do with finding no excuses. Jesus said, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, and we really aren't sure, real sure where Sheba is. Some people think it's in the western area of Arabia. Some people say it's kind of where Yemen is now, on the African continent. And he said, she came, the queen of the south came, just to hear Solomon. And he said, on the day of judgment, she's going to stand up and condemn this generation. She came a long ways to hear Solomon. And here you people are. She was a Gentile. You were privileged Jews. She traveled a long ways. You just had to walk around the block. <laughs> you know, she, she listened to Solomon. <laughs> They were listening to the Son of God. Now, here's the bad thing. No one, ex, you can give an excuse for why you do not believe in Christ. You can give an excuse for why you don't want to commit your life to Christ. But excuses are worthless. Whenever we think about it, he said, she's going to condemn this generation because look at what she did and the effort she went to and look at what you're not doing. Same thing would be true about the people of Nineveh listening to Jonah. Understand this. <clears throat> no one 
on the day of judgment will be able to claim a valid excuse for their unbelief in Jesus Christ. And I would have to say that that goes double for people who live in the Bible Belt of the United States. You know, I'm sure you've heard it. I have, I've heard it too. And I doubt that any of you use this excuse today or else you wouldn't even be here. But I've heard people say, well, I'd go to church, but nobody's ever invited me. Did we have armed guards standing at the doors outside to keep you from coming in? I didn't think so. We'll have to check that next Sunday. Oh, I, I, I can't go to church because I don't have nothing to wear. Well, you know, I'll admit that there was one time whenever we felt like we had to put on our best bib and tucker to show up for church. And we'd, you know, nearly everybody, especially every man, had one decent pair of breeches and one clean white shirt and maybe a tie to go with it. And he'd show up at church. Those were your Sunday clothes and you didn't wear them doing anything else. But you know what? I am the only one in here today wearing a tie. And does it make any difference? Absolutely not. And even back whenever we would put, a lot of people would put on their Sunday clothes, there were plenty of people who came without wearing Sunday clothes because they didn't have any Sunday clothes. God isn't going to look at what you're wearing. And nowadays, nobody else is going to look at what you're wearing. We don't care. Another thing is this, I've heard this one. Well, I'm afraid if I came, the roof might cave in. Well, if you stay in your house, the roof might cave in. You know, I mean, th these are things, and these are ridiculous. Why is it that you don't want to come to Christ? Is it because you've not been invited? Is it because you don't have anything to wear? No, it's because you don't want to. That's what it's like. And there are no excuses. Don't even be looking for them. And then we see in here, seeing the light. Now, these these last few verses, verses 33 through 36, are a little bit difficult. I mean, because they're talking in a way that we don't talk today. And one thing that we see here, let me just read this to you in verses 33 through 36 in kind of, kind of a, a, para, a paraphrase right here, okay? Jesus says, No one lights a lamp and then hides it in the root cellar or puts it under a bushel basket. No, a lamp is placed on a lampstand so that everyone who enters the house may benefit from its light. Your eye is your body's lamp. If you have a healthy, believing perspective, then your whole being will be enlightened. If you have a sick, unbelieving perspective, then your whole being will be darkness. So, make sure that the light you have in you is, in fact, not darkness. If then your whole being is light with no corners and shadowy areas, it will be as full of light as when a lamp shines on you and bathes you in its light. Jesus came to be the light of the world. He didn't come to be a candle hidden in a cave somewhere. So why is it then that people didn't perceive the light? Back several years ago, two of my nephews were together, and the older one was about 10, and the younger one was probably about 4, or something like that, 4 or 5. And the one that was 10, was about to, he was going to be baptized just in a few Sundays. And he was so excited about it. You know, he just was just, that's about all that he could talk about and all he could think about. And he decided that it would be his evangelistic duty to tell his little baby brother that he needed to be saved too. And his little baby brother was not interested in being baptized. He didn't want to do that. And I remember he said to him, he said, well now, 
Do you want to walk in the light or do you want to be in darkness? And the little one said, I want darkness. <laughs> the other one said, well, that's too bad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to say the least, he's not going into evangelism. But anyway, why is it that people reject the light? It's because people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's what it says in, in John chapter 3. People refused to come to the light because they preferred darkness, because darkness covered their sins. And this is why sin makes us so satisfied with darkness. It thrives in the dank darkness of souls, and it does it like a poisonous mushroom. We feel like we're safe as long as we can't see what our life is really like. But... On the other hand, there's the person that has the clear eye. And, 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 he's, and, it's, and that clear eye is had by those who, who desire to know God, who, who want to obey Him and to trust Him and to enjoy His light. It's a stubborn, rebellious heart that is a heart that is darkened so much with its eyes closed to the truth. Only the eye that is open with a heart that is also open and willing to receive the truth can see this life clearly. We have to see the light if we're going to avoid the darkness. And so I think I know the answer to most of this for most of you, but have you seen the light? That's the most important thing that you can do right now.